This is Dan Vigel, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. When it comes to the return on investment of AI, one of the most crucial aspects for leadership teams to get right is developing a roadmap for building their AI capabilities. Not just random scattered projects, but a coherent path upon which they can build projects in line with a transformation vision. Our guest this week knows all too well the ins and outs of that process, gone right and gone wrong. Ron Bodkin, uh, at the time of his interview with us here, was the Technical Director of Applied AI at Google. Uh, a rather lofty title for a firm as large as Google. Uh, Ron Bodkin had had previous exits from previous companies, including a nine-figure firm called Seabridge Internet Solutions back in the 90s and early 2000s, was the founder of Think Big Analytics after that, had high-level roles at Teradata related to being the GM of AI, uh, and then was working at Google for implementing their AI solutions into the enterprise. He's since moved on to Canada to work with another firm. Ron speaks with us this week about what it looks like to marry near-term projects and progress with building new foundations that will allow you to succeed with AI in the future. It's a delicate balance, but it's one that's crucial for AI ROI. We are publishing this episode one day early. These episodes normally go out on Thursday, but I'm publishing this on Wednesday because we're releasing our Generating AI ROI with a new additional report that we're offering as a complimentary bonus. We've had a lot of requests from folks to talk about applying artificial intelligence AI principles to a real business case. What does it look like to convey the ROI of AI to a leadership team to get to yes? So if we're an internal innovation leader, how do we convince and convey uh, to leadership that a project is worthwhile? On the other side, if we're a vendor or a consultant, how do we really paint a picture of clear value to the folks that we're presenting to so that we can move forward on projects that we think will benefit the client and sort of get over the hump of some of the hurdles to AI adoption, still being able to paint the value despite some of the challenges. What does that look like? Well, we have a new report called AI ROI in Action. This is an entirely separate report, which will eventually be under our reports page. Many of you who are tuned in are reports customers, and we appreciate having you with us. This is one of those rare opportunities where you can get two for one. We're releasing this report because we're looking for some feedback on it. We're excited to be able to release it, so we're bundling these two reports together. That is generating AI ROI report along with this new and yet to be released report called the AI ROI in action report. So if you want to know what it looks like to have frameworks for determining the ROI of artificial intelligence and to actually turn that into a presentation to leadership to move projects forward, go to emerj.com slash ROI1. That's emerj.com slash ROI and the number one, and you'll be able to see that page. This offer is going to be for today and for tomorrow. It's basically been Monday through Thursday. We're kind of opening it up. I'm going to be interested to have feedback on the report once a lot of folks get their complimentary access, but I'd like to make sure you can get a chance as well. That's emerj.com slash ROI1 and grab our latest AI report as a complimentary gift with our generating AI ROI report. So go ahead and check that out. Without further ado, this is Ron Bodkin, who at the time of this interview is Technical Director of Applied Artificial Intelligence at Google. You're on the AI and Business Podcast. So Ron, glad to have you here on the program. It's a real pleasure to, to have you joining us. Pleasure to be here, Dan. Thanks yeah, for having me. Of course. Uh, given your 
relatively lengthy background, not just academically, but in the entrepreneurial world and various businesses. And now obviously with Google and working with big, big enterprises, you've got, I think, a multifaceted take on this question. So I'm curious as to how you'll answer it. You know, when we look at big enterprises that are maybe not used to doing AI, but they, they know this is you know, going to be par for the course moving forward, they're often asking the question, you know, where should we be focusing? Well, you know, how do we identify the opportunity spaces that are really going to be leverage points and make a difference for us? How do you like to think about that question? Yeah, well, I think enterprises need to be thinking about a portfolio approach to the AI they're going to use, that there's a spectrum between on one side, you know, pre-built AI solutions that might be available in a SaaS application or, you know, extend a SaaS application that give quick wins, but are not, you know, highly differentiated. They, they, they'll become table stakes in an industry. You know, somewhere in between is use of uh, smart building blocks, whether prepackaged models or things like AutoML that let AI models be extended for the particular data and needs, but that fundamentally the AI is still prepackaged in a component that can be brought into a custom application. Yep. And then on the, the other extreme is, is more highly differentiated custom uses of AI. And of course, the latter tend to be you know, higher risk and higher reward. But I would say that in almost any industry, enterprises need to be thinking about how do they build that portfolio and how do they build capability in all three buckets, hmm. as well as how do they have the governance to understand like what are the things that they ought to do in any one of those, as well as the wisdom, and which really comes down to the experienced leadership to know what are the things that they should and shouldn't be working on. So that's the macro, yeah, right? I yeah. mean, I think that... You know, a lot of times what you see, I, I think what's often underappreciated is the big talent gap that I see for executing AI is really experienced leaders that have been through multiple applications of the technology. Yes, sir. You know, it's like, just like if you have smart grad students in academia, they rely on a professor with good instincts to coach them. Yep. Even though the grad students often have the best hands-on skills, they need that experienced leadership. And the same thing applies in the enterprise, right? That the leaders who've been through cycles and have good instincts and can coach people on what's going to work and identify the common pitfalls are critical, right? So, so I think in that case, you know, there, there's factors that are clearly important, right? Like understanding the state of the data and is there data available? Can it be collected? Do you have policies, whether it be legally or according to your company's principles around whether data can and should be used for a given approach to machine learning. Sometimes it's about a level of creativity around how can you structure something as a problem that will actually be solvable with today's machine learning techniques. Yep. And also super important, a lot of times I see is not enough of an emphasis early on on how would you actually develop confidence and deploy this, right? There's, I've seen so many efforts at early stages in companies where they think about doing data science and they come up with a study that says, we think there's promise here and they don't know how to structure a test and how to operationalize it where they don't have the priority, right? Maybe one part of the business wants to uh, move forward, but then, you know, the operational system owner throws a flag and says, no, we can't do that because it's too risky or it's not aligned with our roadmap, right? So beginning with the end in mind and knowing like, how would you even experiment live to test something is critical. 
Yeah. So, so many considerations here, Ron, that you're throwing out. And these are all really good. I'm going to poke into a few of these and get some more ideas from you if that works. Okay. So, sure. so you're talking about this portfolio approach. I mean, I can't concur enough on the fact that, you know, experienced leadership would be the goal. The fact of the matter is not every city is Silicon Valley. And so, you know, in, in your random health insurance company, how many people have seen AI come to life is very few. We think about it as leaders who have a, an understanding broadly of what AI does and how it works. You talked about that a rough tertiary understanding of the use case landscape, what's realistic, what's obviously BS and what's realistic. And then thirdly, yeah. some fundamental understanding of the basic terminology so that they don't get lost. Not to be technical, but to understand. Even just that level of understanding is exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare. How do we get over that hurdle in your mind? Because we can't just have a guy like you have conversations with leadership teams all day long just to kind of gradually get them up to snuff. What do you think it's going to take to, to make that education gap get closed? Because I think we really need that first. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely true. And I think over time, right, as, as we continue to see more deployments of AI, you know, more advanced machine learning capabilities, that knowledge is expanding, right? The new graduates with with machine learning who don't have experience you know then spend a few years working and gaining that experience and start to get more of the wisdom you know in the short term what i see us doing is you know combination of bringing google expertise where experienced people in the google team can work with customers and, and coach and mentor them but also you know one of the things that i think we do really well in, in google is is we work with a lot of uh, services partners and and we focus more on do they have that level of expertise, right? So that can be, you know, specialist boutiques of maybe a few hundred people that have deep expertise and can provide that coaching and guidance, or it could be larger consultancies that have built a practice in an area, you know, where they they can bring that. So I think always a lot of it is enterprises need help, right? And and hiring good consulting to enable success is important when it's a new area and there's gaps, and, you know, but of course that has to be complemented with a hiring strategy, but it's a lot easier to scale and a training strategy. It's a lot easier to scale on some success when you're starting to build momentum, right? So what I've seen is putting together the right cross-functional teams and getting initial success and use cases starts to build a virtuous cycle that internal people start to learn and take it seriously and, and, and build momentum. And it's also easier than to attract the right talent because what, of course, happens all too often is organizations that don't yet have momentum try to hire experts. And the experts, even if they like the idea, are often worried about, you know, am I going to just basically be blocked? Is yeah. the culture not one that's going to support this? <laughs> yeah, am I never yeah. going to get permission to access the data? Yeah. Am I not going to be able to, to do the kind of things that it takes to hire the talent? Right? These are all reasons why you know, experienced leaders would tend to shy away from taking on roles in companies that don't have a, a track record of success. Yeah, I've got, okay, I've got two follow-up questions on this for this, this first topic. You've, you're opening up another great set of cans of worms. So one of them was around, and I really liked your framing of it, we need a hiring strategy, we need a training strategy, and we need the right mix of outside help, so product and services companies. I think that's the only realistic answer. Anybody that's going to lean on only one, especially if you're a big enterprise, it's literally ridiculous. Leaving out any of those is obscene. And I think you're bringing up a, a great theme around that mix. Here's a question that I actually really haven't thought about that much as of yet. Do you generally recommend that leadership teams talk to smart folks like yourself, maybe you know other people that have seen it done before, really build an idea 
Like, does the talent hiring and external vendor game, does determining that mix happen somewhat before we pick and move with our AI projects? Or does that really spin out of where we decide our focus area is? I could see people arguing on both sides of that fence, but what comes, you know, cart before the horse here? You know, what I've seen work the best is really getting the right partner that's got more experience to be able to help with picking the right areas and you know, then both training and bringing along internal talent as well as bringing supplementary external talent. Because you know, I, I think it's hard to start with hiring expertise without a clear, realistic goal, right? And I've seen organizations that have tried and often that's what happens is, you know, people will take, hire in smart, but, but junior people without a lot of experience and they'll work on the wrong project and they'll get yep. frustrated. And the other thing that I think, you know, needs to be done early on is you really do need to have senior sponsorship for the initiative. The idea that you're going to make a big change in terms of going to using machine learning techniques means you have to have sponsorship to actually deploy them, to understand what it means for the business, to give access to the data. And often it's blocked by a cultural barrier. I see a lot of big organizations where the culture is one of risk aversion, right? Oh, yeah. That if you do something that, that doesn't pan out, it's career limiting. But the reality is in order to succeed with, with AI, you have to be able to do a lot of experiments and try a lot of things. And you know, many of them won't work. And if you're able to have a culture where uh, it's okay and you, you wait until the thing is really driving results to deploy it, you're going to do a lot better than a culture where people have to pretend that everything succeeds in order to succeed in their career. And therefore, you don't actually focus on the things that are really working, right? Because a lot of times what you see is things that sound good, like, you know, we could improve X with AI. There's a lot of cases where it turns out you can't, yep. that, that you don't have the data and that what's being done so far, maybe with traditional statistical methods or, or you know, with hand one experience works well, right? So you really need to be able to focus on where are you actually adding value. Yeah. And again, that requires experience, right? You need somebody who understands conceptually where AI could be used and you need a tertiary or even better than tertiary understanding of the use case landscape. What has worked? Like, okay, yeah. we're, we're a midsize insurance company. Is this kind of claims process even remotely have any precedent of being automated or influenced whatsoever, even by the companies that make 10 times more revenue than us? If nay, it may or may not be project one, right? Yeah. It, it depends. So I guess that brings me to the, to the next part of this first question, then we'll get into the second part of the interview. The, this sort of has to do with, you know, you talked about this portfolio. I've actually never heard it framed the way that you said it, but I like it where you said, you know, we have this continuum of which I'm familiar, the, the continuum of, you know, we have SaaS that has AI baked in the background. We don't even really realize. We have little building blocks like APIs that we're yanking into an existing process. But at the end of the day, we're not really having to get our hands dirty. Then we have big custom projects. You talked about maybe really thinking about having a bit of all of those maybe in, in a bit of a portfolio. When you think about how to flesh that portfolio out, whether to lean more towards the, the easy or more towards the hard, are there important factors for thinking about that balance? I think there's a couple of things. One is, as you alluded to in your question, talking about, say, a midsize insurance company, the nature of, of the company is going to determine that. You know, like when we're talking with some of the leaders in an industry, they tend to have rightly a sense that 
their leadership position, their access to talent, their access to data gives them a lot of leverage if they lean in and really put effort on applying, you know, investing in building up custom AI expertise and building differentiated capabilities. Whereas I would say that, you know, smaller organizations often don't have the resources and instead do better to execute a fast follower strategy of saying, what are the, uh, the innovators in this space doing and how do we learn from that? Right. So like, Take the retail industry, right? The, the very largest retailers that we're working with are challenging the digital natives, right? With ideas of how can they use their stores as well as online presence, compete on the, the digital front and leverage their unique assets. And there's a ton of work around topics like how do you be more innovative in you know, merchandising and logistics and demand forecasting and you know, serving customers across channels, right, where they might be leaning in. Yeah. But then when we look at you know, smaller retailers, what we'll, we'll tend to see is a lot more emphasis on like, what are the areas where they can deploy more well-understood solutions and get value from things that are relatively easier and maybe put more of their effort into a few things that highly differentiate them. You know, the other thing that I'd say is sometimes building something custom can can actually save effort, right? Like what we see a lot in retail is retailers take the example of e-commerce search, super important part of how you drive digital sales. Yep. And of course, e-commerce sales are, are only more important than ever in the middle of the crisis we're in, yeah, right? Yeah. But what we see is that many retailers ended up deciding that traditional SaaS offerings for search weren't working well. They went with open source solutions like Solar and Elasticsearch, but then realized that the search quality wasn't good. And so they relied on an army of, of merchants to go and make custom rules to fix bad queries one at a time. Yeah, and of course, yeah. that doesn't scale well. It ends up being a huge amount of labor. And when conditions change, as, as has been happening so much in this climate of uncertainty, it works really badly. Right. So that's an area where you might say it's in the middle where we're leveraging deep expertise in AI that Google has around query understanding to work with some of these retailers to build great solutions. But it still brings their ability to customize with things like learn to rank models that are specific to their customers and their ability to maybe bring in specific domain expertise. But now instead of doing it through, you know, lots and lots of handcrafted rules, it's fewer rules that are more strategic as well as bringing specialization to improve the quality of those search models, right? So, so it, it really does vary by the organization, but I think th those are a little bit of the sense that bigger organizations with more resources tend to want to put more effort into custom and differentiation and smaller organizations with more limited resources want to be really selective about where they invest for differentiation and try to get more of the table stakes from SaaS and from building blocks. Yeah. Okay. It completely makes sense. Yeah. The, the way that I kind of jotted it down here is taking notes as we're chatting, you know, companies that have big budgets, particularly for R&D, uh, often these are the, the biggest players who have established, you know, a lot of talent, potentially a decent amount of digital fluency. You know, they're not totally stone age, you know, not on yellow pads anymore. They might be leaning harder, more towards the the harder side of the scope where we're talking about big differentiating stuff while the folks that are a little bit less far along along those continua are going to be more on the easier side there. With one exception, of sure, course, yeah, which yeah. is disruptive startups, right? Where, yes, of course, uh, of course. Disruptive startups typically are investing heavily in using AI techniques to change the game in yep. their industry. 
right? So the, even though they're smaller, you know, their kind of thesis is that they're going to use AI to create value in many cases. They'd fit the criteria I mentioned, though. Uh, massive amounts of budget dedicated to R&D, huge digital fluency in their DNA from the ground up, and the talent is yeah. already there, right? Do you know any Silicon yeah. Valley startups that don't have a shit ton of data scientists already? Because I don't. Um, so, yeah. you know, not any good ones. So, um, so yes, I think they, they certainly fit that bill, too. And I know you guys work with the innovative startups as well as the big enterprises. You guys are kind of across Definitely. the whole board here. So my next question which kind of relates to putting these pieces in action. I love these actionable insights we have here about building and thinking about what our balance is, thinking about what our talent is. I really hope that our listeners tune into that hiring, training, and outside vendor mix and take that very seriously because, Ron, I think you dropped a real nugget there. The next question, final one here, is around kind of making the business case in the enterprise. So we're not talking quite about the Silicon Valley companies at this point. We're talking about the you know, whatever it is, the Geico's of the world, you know, some random big division of GE somewhere, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, we, we figure out what we think some opportunities could be. We figure out, you know, maybe the state of the data there. And now we've really got to get the budget. We've got to loosen up some of that culture that you talked about where a lot of companies are, are wrestling with. And we've got to be able to move forward on projects that we really think could make a difference. What are the components we need to make that argument upstairs and, and really be able to move forward if we feel confident that it's the right move? Yeah. So I th what I see is traditionally the easy business cases to make involve cost reduction, right? And, and so you certainly see a number of organizations, especially starting with that mindset, right? So, you know, we see things like companies that are excited about using document AI to do things like automate invoice processing, where there's clear cost reduction. But one thing I'd say that I, I, I'm seeing as a trend that's interesting is, you know, an increased awareness that improving capabilities to drive growth and revenue is, is an important business case, right? So, so on the example of improving e-commerce search, uh, like I talked about before, that's clearly about driving a, a very measurable increase in top line revenue, as well as associated metrics like, you know, basket size and how often stickiness versus bouncing, right? Because a lot of uh, e-commerce sites find that um, if their search is bad, that people keep bouncing back out to google.com for searches. Yeah, and, yeah. And but, but every time someone bounces out, it's a jump ball. They might not come back, right? Yeah. But, but where it's interesting is, you know, another area that we're doing a lot of work is around using AI to, to really change customer service, you know, in the contact center and beyond where, you know, applying a lot of the technologies that are in Google Assistant or even, you know, outbound calling like duplex to help enterprises in their call centers, Right. And initially, a lot of that work has been really supported by at least cost mitigation, right? Where a lot of times what's really happening is it's not so much like companies want to reduce the, uh, the size of that staff, but they don't want to keep it, the unfettered growth, right? Yeah, they keep yeah. hiring more and more agents and they want to be able to make their agents more productive so they, they don't have to keep scrambling to try to hire more people. Um, so that cost mitigation has been traditionally a big motivation, but it's really interesting. And in, in, in the last few months, as more and more of our customers are, are realizing how critical their digital presence is, that we're seeing an increased emphasis on, we want to go beyond that to really improving the quality of customer service and driving that success. And, and, you know, and what, what I've seen work for that is like, it's almost impossible in a case like that to come up with a simple metric to say, well, I can prove that our investments in this, you know, improved AI for contact integration for customer service, customer experience is really driving revenue, 
right? But instead, what has to happen is the leader who's responsible for that area has to make the case that across all the capabilities they're doing, they're going to achieve some new metric, right? And that might be improving their net promoter score. It might mean driving up the amount of time that's spent in digital channels. It might be you know, more referrals or it, it might be more cross-sales. There might be a variety of metrics, reduced churn, right? But, but the net-net is you know, what, what has to happen there is fundamentally the business owner who owns that process has to sign up for improving a top-line, a non-cost metric and then they need to then budget and include the AI as part of that portfolio they're bringing, right? Because it's never going to just be the investment in AI. It's going to be a business initiative to make a difference to something critical. And fundamentally, it's about them coming to believe as a leader, to understand, to have confidence in the AI team that, that they're working with, and that therefore it's going to be successful. And you know what gets into another interesting dichotomy, which is over the long term, as companies get more and more fluency, there tends to be a strong desire to align AI talent with products and therefore into the business. But in most organizations that are not digital natives, when they don't have enough density of digital talent, they don't have enough AI expertise, it's actually counterproductive to peanut butter a little bit of AI skill across many business units. And it's better to start with a center of excellence so then you end up needing to have the, the leaders work closely with the center of excellence. And you know the center of excellence wants to help one of the businesses be super successful before a second, right? So it's yeah. about strategy and focus. Yeah, that, that whole mix of you know, how to pull off a AI center of excellence in an enterprise, there is no cookbook on that right now. Uh, that cookbook is being developed, right? Um, and, and I sure. think so many nascent examples. There's certainly better approaches and worse approaches, but but what you're talking about, I think, I think is an idea that's resonating. The nuances of how to pull it off. I think we're going to watch the uh, what do we want to, the Cambrian explosion of AI in the enterprise. Just see, you know, what survives here. What, what's the best way to start with that node and expand, or start with different nodes, or very kind of complicated process there. But I, I would agree that it's often a good idea. Question about where you were headed here. You mentioned. Cost savings often going to be sort of the low-hanging fruit. I would concur with that. Um, I think that enterprise leaders think of AI like IT, except it's geared towards automating things, which means saving costs. Of course, it's a very limited view of AI, and it's, it's inaccurate in many, many ways, but, but it's often where it's mentally bucketed. Um, and it sounds like for you that efficiencies is often where people think first. You also mentioned that the business leader, the way that you framed it, and I want to make sure I'm nutshelling this right, Ron, is that the business leader who, who's responsible for whatever area, you know, customer experience, whatever the case may be, uh, fraud detection, whatever, they've got to think about where AI fits in. So they've got to have some big kind of a vision of where they're going and a measurable goal other than just efficiencies that they're really striking at. And that, you know, part of the budget they're asking for involves AI. It's not just an AI project. There's a big mix here. We've got talent, we've got SaaS, we've got IT stuff, we've got, but AI is part of it. And we've got to have that measurable goal and make sure AI can be a very compelling ingredient to this batch that we need to go ask for money for. Is this the, the way that you would frame it or would you add detail there? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it really is Therefore, I think that uh, as organizations see what can be done with AI, there's an increasing recognition by leaders, you know, whether it be you know, different business units or different functional areas that you know, they can use AI to drive 
better results, right? And that, that, that actually there's, there's more impact there, that it's not like a classic IT business case where so often that's about automation and reducing costs, but instead it's much more about there's new capabilities. You can do things that are delightful for your customers that can really enable better work and better productivity in the business that you can, you can really move the needle other metrics around how the business is performing. Right. So I think there's higher value in that, even though, you know, it takes more leadership from those business leaders to, to say that, yes, this is something that we really want to do. Uh, we want to embrace this. You know, if you, if you look at it, you know, thinking about some of the first uses of AI inside Google, you know, obviously Google's always applied AI to its core products. Search is fundamentally an yeah. AI problem. Yes, it is. But when you think about improving how advertising works with use of AI, it's an example of, you know, that, that that wasn't just about efficiency. I mean, it was already a fair, you know, Google ad system was already a fairly efficient self-service system, but but basically making the system work better for the customer and driving better results for the customer, you know, with things like smart bidding, right? So yeah, yeah, I would yeah. say in its core business, Google sort of is invested heavily in, in AI to allow for better results as well as in, in cases, even enable new products that weren't really possible before, right? So things like Google Photos were AI around the content of the images kept private, but made it made available to you as a powerful new capability that just isn't like what traditional photo systems were like, or Google Assistant, right? The ability to have a high quality conversation around topics and to be able to therefore do really useful things as an assistant. Those are things where AI enabled a new capability that wasn't possible before. And I think in every industry, people need to be thinking about that. What are the things that are just on the cusp of possibility that weren't possible before? Yeah, and and so well, this uh, I'll, we could go so many directions with what you just said there, and uh, I've got a lot of thoughts around selling AI upstairs related to that. But just to to kind of draw attention to two points that you've brought up here, we've got a, a measurable unit we're going to improve in some way, shape, or form. AI is going to be part of that mix in the basket of things we're asking for. We go upstairs, we kind of ask for that, you know, make it realistic. We know where AI is going to fit in, and it's part of achieving X, you know, X improvement, X uh, some, some measurable metric of customer satisfaction or lifetime value or whatever it is, fraud reduction, whatever we're going for. This other thing you're talking about here is more of painting a vision or tying to a longer term strategy of what will really differentiate us. Much harder to put a number on, a single number, but but it is still compelling and necessary to stay ahead of the market. Do you think most AI projects require a bit of both, a bit of just the, the hard line, here's the metric, here's what we're trying to move, and here's where AI fits in, I need the dollars, versus, hey... This is where AI is going to fit in. It's going to be transformative. And here's the bigger vision we're working towards and why AI is critical. Do you think most projects require a bit of both of those ingredients from your experience? Well, I think in either case, you have to start with some amount of funds for innovation and exploration, right? So before you can say, hey, here's, here's the business case of the thing that we're going to do, you need to be able to experiment and test and get the evidence that it's going to work, right? So it's a, it might be a stage gate process, but you, you need to have some amount of funding that leaders provide to, to explore and figure out what's going to work. Launching new capabilities or new products can be a more disruptive thing and, and therefore is often less early in the journey. I think it also is can be fit a very similar kind of 
business case, it's similar kind of justification. You, you do experiments, you prove it out, and then you try it, right? And you know that not every new thing you launch is going to work, but you know if it does, it can have a big impact. In terms of like, how do you just generally invest in the capability? Certainly, the more that the business is able to put some amount of support for infrastructure and funding to enable those capabilities, it's a good thing. What I often see, though, is organizations start with, we, we want to justify that infrastructure investment based on the first yeah, application. Yeah, that's hard. That's it needs really to come hard. from somewhere, right? So, you know, it's typically the CEO who's at the level that they can say, I'm willing to make that fundamental yes. investment yes. in a capability. Yes. And therefore, I'm going to allocate some budget just to explore and learn. You know, there's usually some amount of money in an R&D CTO function in a company that can cover at least some of the exploration and, and maybe some of the prototyping. But, you know, it's, I haven't seen a lot of companies that have so much funding for that that they can, they can actually fund all the way to a live test that, that somewhere it has to hand off to a business leader's budget to say, yes, I'm going to one way or another fund this thing because I believe this is going to be valuable, right? Yeah. Such an important point. We could talk for two hours on just this point of the investing in core maturity versus whatever is going to get us this little short-term deliverable, right? We, we often need to find a balance. The, w- the way that I, I see it, I think you're kind of articulating this, is that initial projects – have you know some promise of strategic or measurable results and that gets us excited about AI and then we can have a mature adult conversation that we're not going to have all wins all the time and that part of part of doing this first project should be part of the ROI should be building the foundation it sounds like you're advocating for something similar yes we've got a project yes let's go ahead and shoot for it but let's make sure we're laying something that's going to allow us to do more in the future at the same time yeah, and I would agree. The other thing I'd say, though, is that you know, if you can get the first projects that have more of a low-hanging fruit nature where there's good opportunity that you're going to show some real value, it's a lot easier to talk about funding, yes. the infrastructure, yes, 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 and the yes, center yes. of excellence yep. when people have seen that it works, yep. right? Whereas you know, you're in the worst position to go out and try to get funding when you're, you're, you're selling the field of dreams because yep. – you know, the business leaders have heard this story before. Here's yet another technology that's going to be transformative. And I just oh, yeah. need a big oh, budget. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then just give me a few years. Right. And, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and, 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 you know they, once bitten, twice shy or, or, or several times bitten shy. Right. Yeah, like people yeah. know that and they really want to see some evidence that it's working before they really open it up. Right. So that, but that gets back to why you want to pick a small number of things to do that are where you've got a good chance of having some success and pick the right partners in order to make those first efforts show some results. Right. And, and, you know, usually it's not the most ambitious, yep, it's uh, not. challenging thing, it's but, not. but some basic things that you can really show some quick wins and, and build momentum. Yeah, and there, what a tightrope it is to promise those quick wins when it comes to AI projects. So this is all, it's all a delicate balance, but uh, I concur with you to a great extent. Ron, it's been a real blast. I love your idioms here, talking about uh, your twice bitten and your, your jump ball. I think that's the first basketball analogy we've ever had on the podcast. So that was a lot of fun. I sincerely appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. It's been great being here.
So that's all for this episode. I certainly hope you found this one useful. If you did, be sure to stay in touch with us on social. And if you're interested in understanding how to unlock the ROI of AI in your company or for that of your clients, uh, then go ahead and check out emerj.com slash ROI1. For today and tomorrow, we're going to literally be offering our AI ROI in action report as a complimentary bonus to our generating AI ROI report, which is one of our best-selling reports that we're kind of formally launching this month. So go ahead and check it out. It's emerj.com slash ROI1, and you can get a two-for-one. Again, this is open for today and tomorrow, October 1st, midnight Eastern. This offer is closing down. So go ahead and check it out if it's of interest. Otherwise, be sure to stay tuned for next Tuesday as we get back into use cases here on the AI in Business podcast. I look forward to having you back with us. 